have reached Voices of Experience on this beautiful Wednesday. Oh, my goodness, looking out there at that sunshine. What an amazing uh, bit of weather we've had over the course of the summer and now into the fall. This is a great place to live. Thanks so much for tuning in to either KKNW AM 1150 or Kixie 880 for this program each and every Wednesday at 3. It is Voices of Experience. We're live at that time. And then it repeats Sundays on Kixie. If you miss it uh, on the Wednesday, be sure to tune in on Sundays at 11 a.m. over there on Kixie. Best of all, it goes to podcasts. So regardless of where you are, what device you want to hear this program, there you go. Uh, That's all the housekeeping stuff. Just go to that uh, place you'd love to get your podcast and subscribe to Voices of Experience. Well, normally you'd be hearing our fearless leader, uh, Paul Casey, at this time, but Eric Ryder and I will be sitting in his stead. We're here as well each week, but uh, he's off on a little bit of a vacation, so here we are. Nice. Yeah. Good for him. I'm looking forward to hearing all about it when he comes back. Get all the snapshots, or as um, as our friend uh, over there at Mea- uh, Meandering Musing says, the postcards. I'm waiting on my postcards. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> We still have a great show, though. Is he though. on a boat, though? I mean, it's well, kind of hard to mail. I think he's cruising, <laughs> but uh, at port. You know, once you hit port, yeah, there you, you go. Slap that, uh, slap that stamp on there and get us that postcard. Hope you're having a great time out there, Paul, uh, and uh, enjoying your well-deserved vacation. Well, with that said, we still have a show to do. Absolutely. And uh, you and I are going to sort of uh, pilot and co-pilot this uh, this operation uh, let's talk about some of the things we're going to be uh, that are going to be on today's show. We're still going to have uh, people's favorite segments, uh, and uh, you know, including some great interviews, voices of history, and our timeless classic to round out the show. Excellent, and I know there's some interviews that Paul had put together prior to taking off that we'll have. We're going to be speaking with, or or he's going to have uh, uh Niels Peterson's uh meandering uh, musings we're going to talk about Mississippi right. he's going to talk about that uh Reverend Dale Turner will also be on and then as you said timeless classic and then you and I are going to be covering a, a voices of history sort of an expanded segment at about the 30 minute mark so lots to do lots to I was to talk amazed about. by uh, how you know I I don't think of this uh, time of the year as being all that eventful for some reason but I uh, Tons of amazing stuff happened this week in history. So absolutely, uh, even yeah. on this day itself, right? It was. You're right. It's amazing what you can find on that thing called the internet. Yep, it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Sometimes it does some good. <laughs> well, what do you think? Uh, let's go ahead and take a, a quick promo break, and then let's go into the first audio segment that uh, comes to us thanks to the efforts of Paul Casey prior to his vacation. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? 
If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. And non Pharma first set foot on the path of science photography as an interactive biology student at the University of California at Berkeley. He took a summer job with National Geographic and the rest is kind of history. Since then, he has photographed numerous stories for National Geographic magazine, including Mind Suckers, a 2014 cover story about parasites that control the minds of their hosts. I'll leave it at that. So the bottom line, he's been with National Geographic for a very long time. He's just released a book called Photographs of the Hidden World. You, as a young boy, wanted to be a marine biologist and you wanted to head in that direction. You had aquariums all over your house growing up. But then National Geographic approaches you at some point, and uh, you get into photography of your dream. But then you hit a point where you found that actually taking photographs really enhanced your marine biology desires. Is that correct? Yeah, that's just about right. I grew up, you know, kind of in the woods outside Atlanta, exploring streams, looking for bugs, looking for salamanders, and kind of growing up assuming, okay, the only life for me is, is as a scientist. That's the only way that I can continue this childhood fantasy of adventure and exploration. And uh, when I got to college and I was a biology major, I, I got a summer job working for a natural photographer, and that's when it first clicked that, whoa, wait a minute, I could maybe do what I wanted to do as a scientist, but through photography. And uh, along the way, I figured out how to blend the two careers together, and, and I, I have a foot in both worlds today. Very fortunate, and on both levels, of course. I mean, you knew what you wanted to do very early on in life. Got a home run there, and then you hit a grand slam, and being able to uh, melt those two together. Now, in 2022, you established a National Geographic Wonder Lab to test the boundaries of how we visualize the natural world. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. So I spent uh, 10-ish years photographing stories for National Geographic. And in between those magazine assignments, I'd work with scientists and I would, uh, you know, teach my process to early career photographers and uh, present to schools. And I, you know, I thought, okay, I want to combine these three passions of my life, science, photography, and education. And I looked around and I thought, you know, there is no institution, there's no place for me to do all three of these things. And so I'm going to have to invent that myself. And that's where the idea of Wonder Lab came from. So Wonder Lab is a space uh, right here in Berkeley, California, where I live. It's part photo studio, it's part biology lab, and it's part classroom. So I get to do all three of my favorite things. I saw something in the book, and it goes specifically to hummingbirds, that you had a better understanding 
how hummingbirds fly just by your photography. What did you uncover? Yeah, so Hummingbirds is a project that I worked on with my good friend and collaborator, Chris Clark, who studies the movement of hummingbirds. And so early on in my career, I would follow him all throughout Central and South America, tracking down hummingbirds, and he would record them with his scientific instruments. I'd record them with my photographs. And he could use my photographs to better understand how their feathers uh, were able to produce sound. And so that's been a really fun project where I get to give back to the science that has been such a core part of my work throughout my career. Your book has a number of stunning photos. Are there any that particularly jump out at you and you're really proud of and said, this is kind of my really great achievement? The whole book is, but is there something that jumps out at you that you're very proud of? Sure. I really love this photograph of a hummingbird drying itself off. That's in the time chapter, chapter two. And so you can see this hummingbird the kind of outline of its body and its wings are frozen. And then you see all these streaks coming off of its body. And those are actually water droplets that are being flung off of its body as it shakes so fast that our eyes can't see it. Uh, that is one of my favorite photographs. It captures time and it captures details that you could never see. I mean, this, I, this happened right in front of me, in front of my camera. Uh, but it was so quick that I, could not perceive any of the details happening in this in this uh, image, and so it's it's such a delight to look at this picture. And every time I notice a new little detail of some swirling droplet, and think, "Wow, I never got to notice that before." It rewards me every time I look at it. How, let's say, did some things you uncover about, let's say, a creature or creatures that the photography brought that out? There was something that you were underwater diving and some creature came on your fishing mask or something and you saw some details you'd never seen before. Yeah, this is, I'm describing, I describe an experience I have actually in the introduction of the book. This is back when I'm a photographic assistant to a Nat Geo photographer. His name is David Litchwager. And I remember we were out on the, off the coast of Hawaii collecting plankton, little baby sea creatures out on the surface of the ocean. And I caught this little baby flounder and the cool thing about baby flounders is they're totally transparent so all i could see is its eyeballs the rest of its body is totally clear and i looked at it under a microscope i tried to take the most careful look at the real thing as i could and i could just barely make out the outline and then you know when my boss and mentor took a picture all of a sudden you could see all of its tiny delicate ribs all of the rays of its fins and there is this rainbow of color hidden inside of its skin. And that was the moment that I realized as a young apprentice, whoa, photography can really reveal whole worlds of hidden detail. And I remember seeing another one in real life years later, and it, and it settled on my snorkeling mask. And this time I knew, oh, I know how to unlock the secrets of this creature. I, if I hold my flashlight just the right way, I can see some of those details I first saw in David's photograph. And that's the that's the impact I want these photographs to have. It's not just these are creatures that you're never going to see. They're, they're too small. You're never going to witness. I, I, I think the most powerful images are those ones that make you look at the world more closely. So that photograph of a hummingbird, sure, maybe you can't freeze it in your mind, but 
looking at this photograph that shows all the details of its feathers, maybe that helps you appreciate it the next time it shows up in your garden or the next time you see a bee. You can actually get down on your hands and knees and make out the tiny hairs on its face, and you never would have known to look for them if you hadn't seen the photograph in this book. And that's that's what I want to inspire people to do, look more closely at the world around them because there are so many layers of beauty and detail that we miss if we don't know what to look for. Well, from my angle, you certainly achieved that. Uh, 350-plus pages, and you mentioned earlier something about you had one chapter on time, but you have size, time, light, and focus. And again, the uh, photographs are magnificent. Thank you so much, Paul. My thanks to Anand Varma. If you would like to look into his background further or look into getting a copy of this book, just Google Invisible Wonders, and you will find all the information you need. That's Individual Wonders. What an awesome interview. I, I I really admire people that can take photographs. And to get to that level where you're taking photographs for things like National Geographic, can you imagine yeah. the skills and the v- vision you have to have? Well, just fascinating, uh, too, to see photos of things you wouldn't normally be able to see with the naked eye, like uh, the movements of a hummingbird because right. they're just too fast. Um, so to be able to capture that. That's pretty cool. I've, that's something in the back of my mind I've always wanted to be better at is taking photographs. And I went out and I actually bought a real nice SLR digital camera. And, and I would go out there on little photo shoots and things like that. Uh, my wife and I would do that. And she'd be kind of behind me with her cell phone taking pictures. And then later I'd look at them. And the cell phone photos were as good or better than mine. you know. And I've got all this gear. Um, so that was a little bit of a fail, but I'll keep trying, you know, keep trying. It, t- talking, though, about National Geographic, I just happened to look up wh- uh, while this interview was happening. It looks like they're going to stop printing National Geographic next year, the actual printed version. Oh, wow. Um, so it'll probably all go online. And I just got back from a trip myself, and that's the magazine I love to grab for the airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, two reasons. Number one, it's just so beautiful. The pictures and the, and the the articles are wonderful. But you also feel a little smarter when you're done reading it, you know. At yeah. least I do. <laughs> no, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that helps bring the world together, too. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad they're continuing online and with their uh, TV network and stuff. But uh, a little something will be lost when the magazine goes out of print. Yeah, that tactile feel of holding it yeah. and looking at it. Uh, that's something I really enjoy. Uh, but great artic- uh, great interview, Paul. Um, really interesting. You know, speaking of voices of experience and Paul, um, I wanted to let people know a few things about this show, especially if you're just brand new to it. Um, if you haven't had a chance, uh, go ahead and take Paul's self-employment quiz at VoicesOfExperience.com. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. This is really for people who've ever thought about maybe having their own business. Check that out. There's also a comment line. So if you hear something you really like in an interview or something you'd like to have dis- discussed on this show, Paul's great about taking your calls at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. And just leave a comment. Um, it really helps shape this uh, radio show. Uh, Paul is the author of two books in his own right, Is Self-Employment Right for You and Pre-Flight Checklist. So check those out if you'd like to learn more about, again, doing your own business and is it right for you. 
we had mentioned at the top of the show the various things you usually will hear on this program. There are some set vignettes and, and uh, sections that we do, like Voices of a History. Eric and I will do that here in just a bit. Um, Spotlight, it's an interview I like to do. And then Timeless Classic, which is a great uh, song, and we'll, you'll hear that at the end of this particular program. Paul also likes to do a section called Solopreneur, and most recently we have aligned ourselves with a wonderful podcast, Meandering Musings, with Neil Peterson. Neil does a wonderful job not only on his website and his blog, which, by the way, is meanderingmusings.net, N-E-T, but uh, he he also uh, provides uh, interviews and conversations on this program. So real happy to have him, and I, I think he's next up, is he not? He absolutely is. There, let's go ahead. Set it up to Neil. Mississippi. I spent the better part of the last week in Mississippi, primarily in Jones County and mostly in the town of Laurel, a town of some 18,000 inhabitants. Laurel's almost a two hour drive northeast from New Orleans and about a one and a half hour drive southeast of Jackson, the state's capital city. Frankly, I was surprised by what I found. I found it to be very intriguing, very interesting. Why, you may ask. A state with three million people finds itself often at the bottom of a variety of different rankings of the 50 states. U.S. News and World Report, in its 2021 ranking, had Mississippi ranked 49th out of the 50 states using 71 different metrics summarized in eight different categories. For example, it had the state 50th in health and 43rd in education. Yet my guess after my visit is that this may be a case where you, quote, don't judge a book by its cover, unquote. Let me explain what I mean. I could feel a hop in the step of the people of Laurel. Something's happening there, something that's worth looking into. The physical evidence is in the downtown where the streets have been repaved, new sidewalks, roundabouts, shops, and buildings being refurbished, orange construction signs and cones everywhere. Beyond that, retail shops and restaurants downtown are coming alive. There's not a vacant store in downtown. Starbucks just arrived in downtown. On the flip side of, quote, progress, unquote, the town really values its history. The central historic district of the town, with its 161 acres of homes, is on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a town that's proud of its progeny. Tops on that list has to be Miss Leontine Price, world-renowned legend who was the first African-American soprano to be a leading performer at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. She is revered here, and there is a park dedicated to her with a huge picture of her stretching more than two stories tall. The town's also a buzz about its current TV notables. Homegrown Ben and Aaron Napier have the six-year hit on HGTV called Hometown. Many of you may already watch this. It takes place here in Laurel, Mississippi. The town also has a history of entrepreneurial innovation. Founded by entrepreneurs in the lumber and milling business, followed by exploration in oil and gas. The town is still the center of that industry in Mississippi. 
William Mason figured out what to do with sawdust from the lumber mills, transforming it into particle board. The largest manufacturer of transformers in the world resides in Laurel. Sanderson Farms is the country's third largest chicken producer. Thermocool makes walk-in refrigerators for many of the top restaurants across the country. And Central Creativity, which I visited, has produced prearranged classroom lessons, laboratory work, STEM and STEAM workshops that they ship to school districts and parents all over the United States. The leadership of the town is proactive. While I was there, the mayor called together all organizations that had anything to do with early learning in order to create a new initiative for toddlers in the community during those crucially important early years. I met with the leaders of the school system. The president of the school board has been doing it for more than six years and is also the pastor of the Agape Church located downtown. The superintendent of schools is a, quote, can-do, call-it-like-you-see-him, unquote, woman who is starting her fifth year. They have much to be proud of, taking the school district that had schools rated F by the state to this year where no schools received an F rating. The district as a whole is celebrating its progress, having moved from an F to a C grade for the first time this year. Interestingly, the Laurel School District this year decided to significantly alter their school year calendar. Starting school in the last week of July and running for nine weeks in a row and then taking a two-week break or intercession. The first week of the break is devoted to students who are lagging behind, focusing on the students who need extra time and attention to catch up. The second week is a break for both students and staff, recognizing that everyone needs a break to recharge their batteries. We'll see if this helps, but it is innovative for sure. Each of these leaders are African-American, The town is 61% black and 36% white. Another interesting fact about Jones County, where Laurel is situated, it's the only county in the Deep South, to my knowledge, that succeeded from the Confederacy, as portrayed in the 2016 movie The Free State of Jones, starring Matthew McConaughey. Mississippi has a special spot in my heart. In 1964, 100 years after Jones County seceded from the Confederacy, I traveled from Massachusetts to Mississippi on my spring break from college to help rebuild a black church that had been torched and burnt to the ground. If you will recall, during that year, more than 24 churches were set on fire in Mississippi. I will never forget that experience. On top of all this, the town has the Lauren Rogers Museum, which is the first and arguably the best museum in Mississippi. It's an absolute gem. Its ongoing collection with changing exhibitions are something to behold. My favorite right now is their quilting exhibition. And did I mention that gas is $3.30 at the pump? One half of what it is in California. One of the interesting eye-openers to me was the way the people in Laurel think about fuel costs and how they view climate change and the Ukrainian crisis attached to this. To them, they're all tied together. Let me explain. This area is an oil and gas territory. Almost all the homeowners and property owners in town get a monthly check of some small amount, but nevertheless a monthly check from the oil companies for the right to drill underneath their properties. Oil is viewed as something that's important to their economy and jobs. 
They feel that right now our nation should be encouraging the oil and gas industry to develop and produce so that we do not have to rely on importing oil from OPEC nations. This, in their view, would lower the cost of gas and significantly hurt Putin's attempt to take over Ukraine. They realize that this approach in the short term would not help our efforts to combat climate change. Bottom line, things are happening in Laurel, Mississippi. I found it an interesting and exciting place to be. And, of course, you can subscribe to the Meandering Musings podcast with Neil Peterson wherever you find your podcasts. And definitely leave a review on Apple Podcasts as well because that helps spread the word. And same thing with Voices of Experience. That's available as a podcast. Subscribe to that and definitely leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. Absolutely. Great point. And uh, spread the word. Um, his his podcast is very similar to what you just heard. Varying lengths, but very, very consumable, if you will. Yeah, most episodes are about five minutes, so it won't uh, take too much time out of your day. But uh, he's got some interesting thoughts about uh, all kinds of random. I mean, the, the name just explains it right there. It's meandering musings, you know, uh, and, and random thoughts on random subjects. And I get something out of each one I listen to. Uh, we were talking while we we're listening to that a little bit about a trip I took through Mississippi. It is a pretty state. Um, geographically, it's it's a lot more beautiful than I thought it was going to be. Very clean. Mm-hmm. Um, I found the people to be very nice. Uh, made a trip, quick trip from New Orleans up to Memphis through there. And when we're up here in the Northwest, and you just don't really think too much, at least I didn't, of what's going on deep south, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But to be on the ground there, it, it at least got a little taste of maybe what it's like to live there. So thank you. Uh, Neil, for a great, uh, a great uh, meandering musing. And we'll be right back with Voices of History right here on Voices of Experience. Colorectal cancer doesn't stop for COVID-19. Hello, I'm Dr. Cecilia Brewington. If you are age 45 or older, it's time to return to care and get tested. The government requires insurance companies to cover not only colonoscopy, but a range of tests, including virtual colonoscopy and other less invasive exams. Talk to your doctor about your options today. For more information on virtual colonoscopy, visit radiologyinfo.org. Welcome to today's Voices of History. Tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. Really like the new intro. Uh, good job uh, facilitating that, Eric, you and your staff. Uh, well, you are listening to Voices of Experience, and this segment is Voices in History, or Voices of History, I should say. Um, we took the task between us. You have a couple. I have a couple. So let's yeah. get right into it. We've got um, our time traveler hats on. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, And like you, I was just amazed to type in you know, things that, important things that have happened today or right. know, on this date. 
and and wow, it just flooded with this. So I picked three that I thought were really interesting. So maybe I'll go first and go over to you, and sure. we'll go, go back and forth. So the first one that I found really interesting was 1775, so a year before independence there. 1775, uh, African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley was freed from slavery on this day back in 1775. So then I thought to myself, okay, I honestly don't know who this person is. I want to learn about her. So I looked her up, and uh, she was an African-American author who is considered to be the first African-American author of a published book of poetry. She was born in West Africa, where she was kidnapped and subsequently sold to slavery at the age of, they're guessing, seven or eight. She was transported to North America. So just that trauma there, and then the the, 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 the ship ship over i mean surviving that is is one major feat um she was sold then into slavery at the age of again seven or eight uh, after being transported in north america where she was bought by the wheatley family of boston after she learned to read and write they encouraged her poetry they recognized that she had a talent and in uh then on uh in 1773 she and the family took a trip to london where they introduced her to prominent people throughout uh, their circle of friends, and they began to become her patrons. They recognized, too, what a talent she was. So um, the publication in London of her poems on various subjects, religions and morals, uh, happened September 1st, 1773, and this brought her fame both in England and back in the American colonies which was just amazing. So prominent figures such as George Washington praised her work. And a few years later, um, uh, the African-American poet Jupiter Hammond also praised her work in a poetry uh, book of his own. So here is this sudden fame to go from being basically taken from her homeland, sold into slavery, and then whisks off, if you will, after learning to read and write and beginning to write poetry to Europe. I mean, what an amazing life at this point. Um, She was then eventually emancipated by the Wheatleys shortly after the publication of her own book of poems. And at that time then, she was of marrying age, and she married a John Peters, who was a poor grocer there in town. Unfortunately, they lost three children, which is obviously probably pretty common back then with disease and things like that uh, back in the 1700s. But uh, ended up dying young. Um, she she basically, after losing the children, they lived pretty much in obscurity and poverty, and she passed away at the age of 31. So all of this occurred in her, her three decades of life, wow. which uh, tragic. And unfortunately, she obviously didn't live to a much older age, and we had even more of her poetry. But what a fascinating woman and life. Right. Yeah. So that happened 1775. Uh, on this day, she freed from slavery. Yes, on this day. Wow, and uh, and and close to that time period uh, in 1767, October 18th, 1767. Uh, you may recognize these guys' last names: Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. Uh, complete the survey of the boundary between the colonies of Pennsylvania and Maryland, oh, okay. as well as areas that would eventually become the states of Delaware. And West Virginia, the Penn and Calvert families had hired Mason and Dixon, English surveyors, to settle their dispute over the boundary between their two uh, proprietary 
uh, colonies, Pennsylvania and Maryland. And that's why we have the Mason-Dixon line. Mason-Dixon line, sure. Yeah. And and then speaking of borders, a hundred years later to the day, uh, in 1867, the U.S. formally took possession of Alaska after purchasing the territory from Russia for $7.2 million or less than two cents an acre. That's a deal. Yeah. That's a good deal. The Alaska Purchase compromised 586, 412 square miles, about twice the size of Texas, and was championed by William Henry Seward, the enthusiastically expansionist Secretary of State under President Andrew Johnson. And at the time, of course, it was called Seward's Folly. Folly. But now it's seen as uh, a masterstroke because, of course, Alaska has brought so much to the U.S. Absolutely. And isn't there a Seward, Alaska? There is. There is. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever driven across Texas, but it takes a couple days. Yeah. And Texas is not tiny, but it is. It's a big state. It's a big state. Right. And But it pales in comparison yeah, Alaska, to the size of Alaska. Alaska Amazing. is double the size. <laughs> Well, let's uh, move on down that uh, that uh, time travel, if you will, to 1921. Charles Streit was granted a U.S. patent. I won't give you the number because it's really long for his invention of the automatic pop-up toaster. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. How did this guy find out about making toast? What was his What was his deal? So Charles Streit was born in Ohio back in 1878, and during World War One, he worked in a plant, a manufacturing plant in Stillwater, Minnesota. And he noticed in the cafeteria they were always serving him burnt toast. That's frustrating. Nobody likes burnt toast. Yeah, well, I guess they, they were do. probably just doing it on the grill back yeah, then, right? Frying it up, I yeah. guess. While electric toasters existed at the time, they had to be consistently watched. So you had to, you know, get it on the toaster and, and then just keep Put the watching. bread in and then right. walk off and do some right. kind of toast time task. Exactly. And it would... Only toast one side. Right. So that And get him, distracted. And that, then, exactly. They're <laughs> over there, you know, stirring, you know stirring the oatmeal. <laughs> yeah. Before you know it, the thing's on fire. Well, his toaster, which he started working on in 1919, was patented in 1921, solved both these drawbacks. It contained in heating elements on both sides of the toast and a spring to make it pop up when it was done. Now, he formed the water uh, Waters Genter Company and started selling his toaster that he called the Toastmaster. To restaurants, and in 1926, the company began selling a consumer version. He re- he redesigned the toaster to feature a lever to adjust the darkness. Now, do you eat toast? Do you like toast? Yeah. What's your number? Do you have a number? I like it on maybe two. Okay, I'm a yeah. little. I go a little further. A little about about number four, but uh, so yeah. So he came up with the idea. Let's even you know give it varying degrees of toast, if you will. By 1930, more than one million toasters were sold annually by them. And by the 60s, the toaster had become a standard appliance in the American kitchen. Now, his company, which became known as Toastmaster Incorporated, made six different consumer designs and experienced lasting success. The company still produces a large range of kitchen appliances, the Toastmaster. Fantastic. All from a guy who's there, you know, (laughs) he's just at the cafeteria and he gets upset at toast. That's amazing. And it, it, it makes you wonder, did fires go down or <laughs> increase after the toaster was invented? Because well, <laughs> there are drawbacks to both sides. No I'm doubt. sure the uh, the uh, visits to the emergency room where people stick the fork in, you know, yeah. to try and get the toast out in those early models. Well, you, the spring broke and zap. You, you know who we could ask about that is the Seattle Fire Department. <laughs> and uh, 
As it happens, uh, on October 17th, 1889, the Seattle Fire Department was created just a few months after the devastating fire that turned most of the city's downtown into a horrible black smudge. Mm. Uh, in the words of Garden Kellogg, who had been a volunteer firefighter since 1870, and he was named the first fire chief. During his first year on the job, the department built a new headquarters in downtown Seattle, as well as five new fire stations throughout the city. Wow. Smudge. That's the word of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, basically, downtown was toast. Oh <laughs> Not the good kind. Not the good kind. So, yeah, no. they, it's it's hard to imagine, like, having a big city without a fire department. Mm-hmm. But uh, it took till 1889 till Seattle got it. Well, it's, which is surprising yeah. because I'm sure the entire city was built from timber, you know, nearby yep. timber. Yep. And so, and, and what was that? what was that year again that the city burned? Uh, Was that yeah, it was 1889, yeah, because it says uh, just a few months. Okay. So then they're like, it's time for a fire department. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Guys. (laughs) Well, let's get back in the time machine. Let's go to 1961. That's the date on this day, actually, that the film adaption of the 1957 Broadway hit West Side Story was then set to film. And um, in this film, uh, it's actually a really good film. I'm not a big musical fan, but, you know, you've got to watch it. West Side, the, the, yeah. the, the movie West Side Story. Rita Moreno, she's one of my favorite actresses in, that, in the film. Um, she starred in it along with a bunch of other great names like Natalie Wood and so on. But she was born December 11th, 1931 in Puerto Rico. Uh, She's noted for her work on stage and screen and a career spanning over seven decades. Seven decades of a career. I'm into this one three, and it seems like (laughs) imagine that. Marino is one of the last remaining stars of the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, Do you question, do you know the golden age of radio? I I would Early assume 30s, that would be yeah like the, like 30s, the 30s yeah, yeah. when we were that we were the thing right before TV before TV <laughs> yep golden age of Hollywood among her numerous accolades and this is really important she is one of the few performers to have been awarded an Emmy a Grammy an Oscar and a Tony wow so that's yeah that's a, she she's got a big shelf a big trophy shelf it's uh, a EGOT <laughs> I I think that's what we call is that, it these is days it's yeah. EGOT you're yeah. right you're right yeah. Uh, Moreno's early work included supporting roles in the classic musical film Singing in the Rain, 1952, The King and I in 56, and her breakout role as Anita in West Side Story, 1961. That earned her the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, becoming the first Latin American woman to win an Academy Award. What an amazing achievement. Her other notable films include Poppy, Carnal Knowledge, Four Seasons. Do you remember that movie, Four Seasons, with Alan Alda back in the 80s? It's actually a pretty good movie if you haven't seen it. Check it out. Um, And then finally, uh, let's see, uh, Slums of Beverly Hills in 1998. In theater, she she starred as, I believe this is Googie, Googie Gomez in the 1975 musical The Ritz, Earning That's where she earned the Tony Award for her Best Featured Actress in a Musical. She was a cast member in the children's television series The Electric Company. I remember watching her as a little oh, kid. Oh, that was my favorite show yeah. when I was yeah. small. Yeah. Rita Moreno. You have to check that out on YouTube. I'm sure there's something there. And then uh, she received two consecutive Primetime Emmy Awards for her roles in The Muppet Show back in 77 and Rockford Files, two of my favorite programs when I was growing up, 1978. So... 
you know, you look at something like that and you're like, hmm, well, I uh, I have a certificate in my office when I completed that one course. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, hats off to her. Uh, what an amazing uh, career. And yeah. I would imagine that she was probably a, a hero for not just um, women, but, but people of Latin descent. Sure. And, you know, it showed that you, know, you can make it. And she, boy, she did. So congratulations to her um, and her great success. Uh, I, that's that's what I have. How about you? Well, you know, speaking of the golden age of Hollywood, on uh, October 16th, 1923, one of the biggest uh, companies in all of show business history was founded. Can you guess? Yes. No, I don't know. Who would that be? Um, no. Okay. Me. All right. October 16th, 1923, Walt Disney and his brother oh. Roy founded the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio in Hollywood. The studio, now known as the Walt Disney Company, has had an oversized impact on the entertainment industry and is now, of course, one of the largest media companies in the world. Mm. Wow. Yeah. There again, I mean, you know, you start with a concept. Paul talks about this a lot during this program. He says, you know, if you're going into business, maybe what you need to do is just look to find a solution to a problem or break out with some new product or an right. idea. There's a new product or idea. Oh, my goodness. To go from just Mickey Mouse drawings, I'm sure, all the way to where they are now around right. the world. I think, aren't there Walt Disney Worlds or Disneylands across the world? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And I, I think Mickey's uh, original name was Mortimer. Mortimer. Mortimer Mouse. Doesn't quite roll off. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and it just makes you think sometimes about like, uh, oh, if he hadn't fixed that and it made it Mickey Mouse, would they own everything in the world now? I don't know. One slight change. Yeah. To the name of one. Wow. That's interesting. Well, I did a couple more here that I found interesting. 1921, biding its time, Soviet Russia agrees to the independence for Crimea. And here we are. Oh, wow. Still fighting going on yeah. over Crimea. And then finally, 2009, QB, for the for the football fans out there, since football is in the air, QB, Tom Brady throws five second-quarter touchdowns against the Tennessee Titans, an NFL record for touchdown passes in one quarter. You know, I'm always worried about Tom Brady. I'm worried about him not feeling good enough about himself. So I'm thinking about writing him a nice letter, telling him he's <laughs> wonderful. And he might be hurting for a little bit of money, so I might send him $5. I think he's doing all right. <laughs> he might be doing okay. Well, great voices of history. Well, Thank you so much. I got one more. Oh, let's hit it. You know who else is doing all right? Uh, this country legend. October 15th, 1973, four months before the release of her 13th studio album, Jolene, country star Dolly Parton releases the record's titular song with the memorable refrain, Jolene, 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 Jolene. <laughs> That's good, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and it was a huge smash for Dolly Parton and, she's, uh, this she's week. Amazing. Now, 1973. You're, you're into music. I, correct a month me if, before I was born. A month before you were born. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was not Kenny Rogers one of the most prolific writers of music for various artists, including himself? Yeah, I, I think, think he's he was, written yeah. just a ton, uh, even the Commodores he wrote for. So kind of interesting. Um, I do want to say you're listening to Voices of Experience. Well, uh, I think that might have been the other way around. Lionel Richie, I think, wrote, wrote for, for Kenny Rogers. I'm going to look that one up. Yeah.
I'm going to look that one up. Voices of Experience, if you have a comment about today's program or any of our programs, we'd love to hear from you. 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. We've got another interview coming up that Paul took care of. That's right. Okay. Classic interview. We have an interview with uh, Reverend um, Dale Turner. Dale Turner. Yep. And we're going to talk about his church and the work that he's doing. You have been listening to Voices of History. If you have historical events that you would like to share, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. The retired Reverend Dale Turner, pastor for over 50 years, of which he spent 24 of those years at the University Congregational Church, is our guest this morning on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. Reverend Turner is well known for his writings and teachings for people of all denominations. Uh, Reverend Turner, what attracted you to your profession? Well, I uh, planned at the outset of my life, early years, to become an athletic coach, and I studied all through uh, college to that end, getting a major in physical education, but uh, I somehow felt called to the ministry reluctantly, though, because I was uh, shy. I hated to uh, express my opinions publicly, but I wrestled with these problems and decided to go to Yale Divinity School, went to a church in Lansing, Michigan, worked as a youth leader, and then also coached football in a high school there. Then I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, worked with young people and uh, coached in a junior college. Then decided that we lost so many games, I better go into the ministry. What brought you out to Seattle originally? Well, our church is... Each uh, local church is autonomous. The pastor where I served retired. I I came out here and uh, was interviewed and and, uh, was called, and so I've enjoyed every bit of it. Great church and a great 24 years. You wrote hundreds of columns. Is there any column that generated the most reaction from the people you were trying to reach? The sermon on... uh, Christian faith and homosexuality, in which I preached in favor of accepting homosexual, gay, and lesbian people. I believe that uh, people are people, and that we ought not to judge them on the basis of their sexual orientation. I guess that sermon stands out because it evoked enough response from people, both pro and con. Do you think society is getting better? Hard. There'd be a fallacy of sampling to uh, say either way. I, I think in our world there are an awful lot of good people that are making the world better, brighter, more loving, but uh, obviously one needs only to read the papers to uh, know there are a lot of rascals still loose in the world. If you could change anything, though, with the snap of a finger, what would that be? Well, I would uh, change racism. I, I think it's deeply embedded in in the human nature to, uh, well, uh, we, we hear preaching that all people are created equal, but uh, we see more black people in prisons and uh, in less uh, lesser opportunities of national leadership. And uh, I say the thing that I would work on most is uh, helping people see that people are people, regardless of the color of their skin, their nationality, or anything else whether they're male or female, that people are people and ought to be treated as people. And that's the thing I I hope to keep working on. The retired Reverend Dale Turner of the University Congregational Church. Reverend Turner, thank you so much for spending time on Profiles of Experience. Nice to visit with you, Paul. 
know what's amazing to me, Eric, is uh, Paul had submitted that interview, uh, I believe, to you and Benny uh, quite a while ago, certainly before the events of what's happening right now in the Middle East. So what yeah. a fitting message uh, just happened to be placed into this program on this day. I like what he's saying about, you know, people are people and we need, we do need to find a way to all get along That's uh, right. on this globe. We only got one of them. So, you know, so be, be good to each other out there. I guess that's a good message to end this on is uh, be good to, to one another and keep your, keep your mind open and your heart open to, um, uh, New experiences, things like meandering musings. That's what I like about Neil doing that. He just goes out there and he finds these these little things that just uh, make his trip or make his day. And he, and he, and he really thinks it through. And I, I hope you can do that too in life because that's a big part of what life's all about is discovery. And so if you've just discovered this show for the first time, it is Voices of Experience. Thanks so much for your time listening. Uh, Paul will return next week with uh, the regular program, all the features, Voices of History, Spotlight, Timeless Classics, Solopreneur, and Meandering Musings with Neil Peterson and more. Uh, So please tell your friends about this program, Voices of Experience, right here on AM 1150 and KKNW and uh, Kixie 880. Eric, any final words from you? I was just going to say, Paul, if you're listening, I hope you're having a great time. We look forward to seeing you back again next week. And we'll go out with our Timeless Classic. The singer of this week's Timeless Classic said that she hoped it would comfort the many thousands of people when they realize their dream of being in motion pictures, television, or music, but then fail to realize their dream and plunge into despair. The song soared to number one. James Weatherly wrote the song, but said he was looking for a title. He was calling his friend Lee Majors one night, and Farrah Fawcett answered the phone. He asked what she was up to. Farrah said she was taking a midnight plane to Houston. Weatherly found the name of his song that night, but it ended up being changed just before it was recorded. From October 27, 1973, Gladys Knight in the Pips and Midnight Train to Georgia. Without him.